1: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about New Subaltern Politics Reconceptualizing Hegemony and Resistance in Contemporary India. This book is edited by Alf Gunville Nielsen and Sorella Roy and is published by Oxford University Press. This book is a wonderfully rich and theoretically coherent collection of texts that critically assess the legacies of subaltern studies through many different Pieces of research into political movements in India today. These range from students at elite higher education institutes who shore up their privilege, to queer activism in Kolkata, to Dalit villages who are fighting against land grabs. The book's rich case studies really allow for a nuanced and relational understanding of you know what subaltern means, as well as you know the relationships between you know, society and the state. It really is a is a truly wonderful book, and I had the pleasure of speaking with both Alf and Srilab just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Alfons Fuller to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on.
0: Thanks for having awesome.
1: us Oh, yes, great. So, before we talk about your book itself, I was could you just please tell us a little bit about yourselves, your academic backgrounds and interests before this book?
0: Well, I'm uh, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Bergen in Norway and I've worked for a number of years studying social movements and other forms of subaltern politics in India. And I also have a side interest or side business in social movements research more generally which I've also written quite a quite a bit about.
2: Uh, I'm currently senior lecturer in sociology at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, My primary research is in broadly in gender and sexual politics much of which takes as a starting point uh, the contemporary history of India and South Asia and that's most represented in my monograph uh, called Remembering Revolution gender violence, and political subjectivity in India's Noctuary movement.
1: Wonderful. That's great. So uh, the book we're, we're talking about, it's New Subaltern Politics, Re- reconceptualizing homogeneity and Resistance in Contemporary India. It's a, it's, a, it's a collection, a really wonderful collection. I really enjoyed reading it. But before we turn to the, to the case studies itself, I thought a first big question so that we can frame this discussion here today. So my first question to you is, you know, what is subaltern politics? What makes the type of politics that you discuss in this edited volume new? Which is in your title, and how does it relate to the existing scholarship on subaltern studies?
0: Right, well, we define subaltern politics very broadly as the uh, various forms of political activity that's pursued by social groups, which can be said to be adversely incorporated into intersecting sets of power relations, uh, such as caste, gender, and class. Um, this political activity obviously, obviously takes a uh, a number of forms. So it ranges from everyday forms of resistance via every, via rights based campaigns, all the way up to armed struggle in contemporary India. Um its newness uh, derives, in a sense, not only from the fact that it's contemporary, sort of ongoing, as we talk about it now and as we as we're, we were writing the book, but also the, the fact that it it's situated, in a sense, in a uh, – or in certain ongoing processes of change in the Indian context. On the one hand, the long unraveling of Neruvian developmentalism and the ways in which uh, subaltern groups were – accommodated within the political economy of that formation. Uh, on the other hand, the contradictions of neoliberal reform in India and the many conflicts that neoliberalism has both thrown up and the possibilities of new forms of politics generated within that well, that cauldron, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of subordinate studies, uh, what we... What we both found over a number of years working on this topic was, of course, that when you work on new forms of subaltern politics in India, whether it's large-scale social movements or NGOs or more sort of the quotidian politics of how subaltern groups relate to the state, it's, it's almost impossible not to enter into dialogue with the analytical templates and methodological debates that were central to this Walden studies project, despite the fact that it was initially a, a project that concentrated on colonial history. Um, the, um, the ways in which you approach, in a sense, the study of politics from below has, um, has remained very influential. And that's what we that's what we try to sort of address in this book.
1: It's <laughs> wonderful. And so, and how did this volume come about? I and mean, what was the idea behind it? How did you organize this collection and the authors and so on? And What, what made you think of these themes?
2: Uh, so the volume came about through a series of conference panels and workshops that Alf and I organized when we were both at the time working at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the panels and the workshops were meant to represent some of the new forms of subaltern politics in contemporary India, And that we knew various colleagues were researching and to think through how we can bring these empirical instances together under a common theoretical rubric. And as I've just said, that it was also very clear to us that, um, you know, those of of us who were actively mapping these forms of oppositional politics in India were doing so in active dialogue with the analytical and methodological frames provided by the original and studies project, which suggested the continuing uh, relevance of this project, even if as a foil to disagree with or depart from. Mm-hmm. Now, while we laid out the chapters as they appear, it was actually only in the review process and, and thanks to the recommendations of a very helpful uh, referee that the three concrete subsections and headings emerged as they are. and And I think these very much organically reflect the volumes, endeavour, to firstly recover and remobilize gramsci for the present secondly to argue with and against partha Chatterjee's influential framing of indian politics and finally to extend the scope of uh, the category of support in politics itself and forms of political agency that were originally not considered under uh, within its ambit to uh, you know the instances of involving religion emotion affect and textuality
1: Mm-hmm. thank you and i think yeah it, it really is a it really is a wonderful collection because of its diversity but uh, but also because it really has a you know a theoretical coherence that that runs through the chapters so let's turn to the let's turn to the chapters themselves the first chapter is the is the most theoretical. This is, this is your chapter, Alf, and this is mm. the first one that comes after the introduction. So this extends some of these theoretical concerns that you discuss in the introduction, and specifically you talk about the states. So I was wondering, could you please give us an overview about how sort of state-society relations have been conceptualized, usually in subaltern studies, as well as these more recent ethnographies of the, the state that you do it, that you discuss before telling us a little bit about what your reading of Gramsci adds to the discussion.
0: Well, I start from the observation that the Subaltern Studies Project has theorized state-society relations in terms of a foundational schism that, uh, in a sense, extends from Ranjit Guha's paradigmatic statement that subaltern politics uh, constitutes an autonomous domain. Now, the schism in question is that between subaltern life worlds and subaltern politics on the one hand and the state on the other, and this extends across historical time. So if you uh, read various contributions to the Subaltern Studies Project, you'll see that um, they argued uh, in a sense that the pre-colonial state was uh, fundamentally remote from the rural life worlds of subaltern groups, (laughs) Uh, You'll find that the argument was made that the colonial state, for all its efforts to overcome, in a sense, the distance that existed between subjects and rulers, uh, failed to do this beyond uh, incorporating a minority elite into the running of the colonial state. And you'll also find that the argument is made that the post-colonial state has indeed done very little, Overcome this dichotomy, in a sense, between small and life worlds and and the state. Um, I also think that this this sort of this idea of a schism is is there in Partha Chatterjee's uh, current work on political society. Uh, true enough, Chatterjee argues that uh, in over the past three decades, the Indian state has extended it, re, its reach um, quite extensively into. Um, into rural communities and uh, has become something, you know, an entity that the peasantry for one interacts with, but it's nevertheless sort of uh, the idea was is nevertheless introduced through the back door by saying that uh, subaltern groups and they more politically uh, operate strictly on the terrain of political society and that civil society remains an elite domain. So my sort of uh, my point of entry into this debate has been to say that this analytical template doesn't add up. I mean, even if you look at pre-colonial forms of peasant protest, you will see that uh, these are very often centered on making an appeal to moral economies of rule, that, uh, which suggests that there was indeed a, a relationship between rulers and subjects, between um pre-colonial forms of states and peasant life worlds, and that these were central in a sense to, to the um to the ways in which the Muslim groups claimed legitimacy for their opposition. Um, if you look at the colonial world or colonial India, you'll see for example that tribal groups or Adivasis, when they mobilized in large-scale political rebellions, uh, they very often mobilized colonial idioms of state-making to justify their revolts and to frame their claims. And certainly present-day um, mobilization in rural India, which has been my focus, is very much predicated around making democratic claims upon the state, which suggests that the dichotomy between civil and political society um, doesn't go far enough in terms of reconceptualizing state-society relations. So one advance that has uh, been developed in recent scholarship, for example, that of uh, Aradana Sharma and also Gupta's work, is, uh, draws on Foucault's idea, idea of governmentality and argues that subaltern claims and claims-making proceeds through institutions and idioms and technologies of rule that are linked in different ways to the post-colonial states. Um, Now, my argument is that these perspectives have done a lot to overcome the kind of um, dichotomic thinking that is so paradigmatic of the subaltern studies project, but it's nevertheless marred by its failure to, in a sense, conceptualize the way in which state power uh, is congealed from and simultaneously also then reproduces um, structures of power based on caste, class, and so on uh, over time. So historical structures of power. And what I try to do in my chapter is to say that or argue that if we revert back to Gramsci, and his perspective on state formation, and specifically modern state formation, his argument is, in a sense, that hegemony uh, is constructed in and through the making of the modern states, and especially by building a organic link between what he defines uh, in a very different way from what Chatterjee does as civil and political society. The fusion of the two uh, constructs what he refers to as an organic passage. Uh, between subaltern and dominant groups which enable in a sense then the uh, dominant groups to elicit the consent of subalterns and and this is is then key to the reproduction over time of foundational structures of power so i try to mobilize gramsci's ideas of state formation to add on to the relational thinking that has been developed uh, in what i refer to as uh, for called ethnographies of uh, of state power in india and i do that with a specific purpose in mind, which is to try and enable a discussion of how specific forms of states uh, and specific constellations of state power in India simultaneously enables and constra- constrains subaltern politics uh, in the sense that there will be openings where oppositional politics can be pursued, but precisely because of the way in which... Um, state power enables dominant groups to act in certain ways which supporting groups can't due to the way that, uh, the, you know, state power limits uh, the advances that supporting groups can make. It's also necessary to think beyond the state when you think strategy and so on. So those are, you know, some of the key arguments that I pursue in my chapter.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for that. That's a really, a really concise um overview overview of that very you know theoretically dense chapter thank you so much for that let's stick with this uh the first the first section now and, and let's turn to one of the the case studies in detail I was wondering could one of you please tell me a little bit about uh, ajanta Subramanian's chapter which is on the indian institute of technology in madras and this chapter i think is really interesting because it pushes us to to think about what you've been talking now about autonomy but also homogeny in a of certain groups in a different way so could you please tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah, so Ajanda's chapter shows how uh, the idea of merit is a key way in which caste privilege is displaced and reproduced. And this is obviously very important in the context of Tamil Nadu, where the reassertion of upper caste privilege is, can be looked at in terms as being a direct response to a very successful Dalit movement that has won considerable concessions in terms of state policies of reservation. Uh, The discourse of merit enables uh, a representation of the space of technical education or the IITs as being autonomous and thus renders a caste hegemony invisible. And it's this intersection of autonomy and hegemony uh, is what Ajanta shows, in effect, as being at stake in the IITs, which remain dominated, she shows, by upper caste groups, but presented as being autonomous of caste interests. And I don't know if you've seen, but she's been recently writing in, uh, you know, the mainstream media in the Indian magazine Open, for instance, about recent caste-based uh, controversies involving IIT Madras, and how again in the mainstream press uh, the IITs are represented as being, you know, free of any kind of caste conflict. I think the chapters also significant because of its focus on elite and not marginalized groups alone. And this case study, in effect, goes into the heart of one of the volume's central purposes, which is to establish subalternity as a relationship between elite and marginalized groups, as opposed to simply thinking of the subaltern as an identity category, which pertains to marginalized groups alone. And the reproduction of hegemony has to be located in this relationship, which is obviously never one that is free of conflict or contest. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's now move on to the middle section of the book. This is like three wonderful discussions which you pull together under the title, Imagination, Faith, mm-hmm. Effect. And uh, let's turn to, to your chapter, Australia, which, which is a section about queer activism and specifically this organization, um, SAP, Sapo or Sappho, which is a lesbian Sappho. organisation Sappho, okay. yes. in, uh, in Kolkata. So I was wondering, what, what does the work of this organisation um, teach us about the way politics are done in India today? What's the role of effect in this?
2: OK, so I think the very emergence of an organisation like Sappho that provides support for and advocates on, the, on behalf of queer women, Tells us a lot about a changing landscape of politics in India today, which has been made possible by particular configurations such as neoliberalism, globalization, and indeed the transnationalization of gender and sexual rights work. Uh, it's, it, it, it's also illustrative of the fact that the outcomes of these kind of configurations cannot be anticipated in advance, insofar as the emergence, the public emergence of rights and advocacy around sexuality was made possible by uh, funding for HIV-AIDS, right? So this is the, that has been one of the inadvertent uh, possibilities, this kind of new form of politicization around sexuality, previously unseen in India. So SAFO, an organization like SAFO, uh, is a product of this recent history, but I also want to say that it bears the markers of a much longer history, which is of the Indian women's movement, and lesbian groups in particular you know, are, have always been in conversation with um, the Indian women's movement and have had quite a troubled history. So uh, in the first instance, I think, you know, the, the, an organization like SAFO and the work is, that it does shows how the politics of the present is a product of both older legacies and newer modalities. And I've written quite a bit about uh, this in another article elsewhere. I think SAFO also provides is insight into the ways in which younger people are being politicized today, and not in a narrow sense uh, simply around sexual identity, but, but much more broadly, given particularly how Sappho has a very, um, is very self-aware and has a commitment to broader progressive politics. So uh, as I say in my chapter, you know, an organization like Sappho very typically uh, represents um, self-identified lesbian women who are, you know, anywhere from the age group of like in from their early 20s to their mid 40s. um, They are middle class, but they're certainly not elite or rather, you know, their variations in terms of middle classness within the group Um, and, and who have, who are, you know, actively in the process of constituting themselves as being queer, but also, you know, constituting themselves as as young people in neoliberal india in, in in a variety of ways and finally what i argue in the chapter is how um, this politics is really about affect and is an affective politics which is uh, you know a term that i take from nesargi uh recent book on lesbian politics in india and by which i mean very simply that you know this is a politics that you cannot understand if you don't see it as being Motivated by a locus of desire, feeling, bodily forces, conscious or unconscious, uh, directed to—I think I would say—willing into into existence something that does not exist. Namely, you know, lesbian identity. I mean, uh, you know, Dawe makes this point in her book, and I would restate it that obviously the possibility of being lesbian in India actually does not exist. You know, so so it's how do you will into existence something that does not exist something that is still uh, unintelligible in many ways but what I also show very interestingly in the context of Sappho is how affect or you know this repertoire of feeling and forces is policed in certain ways in how Sappho tries to carve out for itself a properly political space and it's it's very interesting to me how um, you know after this chapter was written and published I mean Very recently, in fact, on Sappho's Facebook page, there has been a number of uh, sort of a a number of tensions around people posting on the page as if it were a dating site, so actively soliciting, um, you know, other members, and then and then the admin responding by saying we're not a dating site, and you know this page is for political reasons, and you you can't use this as a space for dating, and that is, I mean, that's the kind of tension. That that the chapter explores, in which I see constantly, you know, that that the organisation is constantly have to, having to battle with this, you know, this 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 tension between what is political and then how affect is actually how this this politics is affective, but trying to um, direct that, trying trying to police that in in certain ways, and I think queer politics in particular you know, it struggles with this tension in ways that other forms of subaltern politics doesn't. So I think I think the case of Sappho, the work it does, and, you know, my research suggests how um, it really expands our sense of what is conventionally political in very, very interesting, creative, and, and, and difficult ways.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that. Um, let's move on then to the, to the final three chapters of the book. And they all, they all critically assess uh, Chatterjee's work, this distinction that we've already mentioned between political and, and civil society. Um, the first chapter, that I think it's the first chapter, Yeah, is mm-hmm. uh, Louisa Sturr's chapter. And, and she talks about the case of, uh, in, in Tamil Nadu again, this is um, land taken from Dalit villages to build a tire factory. And she uses this case to critically assess some of Chatterjee, Chatterjee's ideas on agrarian transition. So I was wondering, could you please tell me a little bit about the case and also what it tells us about how and why subaltern groups mobilise?
0: Yeah, certainly. And I think that the place to start is by considering, um, you know, what uh, what Chatterjee's intervention here has been about and, and and why it's become so so central, in a sense, to scholarly debates about uh, subaltern politics in India. And, um, his article, "Democracy and Economic Transformation in India," um, addresses one of the main, uh, you know, axes of, of conflict in the country today, which is that of land acquisition. <clears throat> so, as a um, as a consequence of neoliberal reform, we see struggles over land multiplying, and this is a direct result, of course, of uh, the liberalization of the Indian economy, which causes uh, an influx of investment, which drives processes of primitive accumulation, which the state actively facilitates uh, by, uh, by uh, enabling land acquisition and so on. But the, the central tension that Chatterjee points to is, of course, that at the same time as the state facilitates land acquisition, facilitates primitive accumulation, precisely because it, the state is a democratic entity Uh, which needs to um, secure its legitimacy um, in relationship to support groups as well. It needs to implement uh, policies that reverses the socially or social uh, consequences of primitive accumulation. So you see various forms of resettlement policies, compensation policies, and so on. Uh, And Chatterjee's argument, in effect, is that the the new politics of rural India is very much uh, about negotiating those policies policies. So Luisa's intervention uh, is uh, an attempt and a very interesting one at that to to both think with Chatterjee and beyond Chatterjee in relationship to a land struggle that uh, took place in the Dalit community in Tamil Nadu, and she makes three interrelated arguments, uh, the first of which uh, is interesting because it calls into question one of Chatterjee's assumptions, namely that um, moving from the countryside to the city uh, is a an attractive option for for most subaltern groups in uh, in rural India today. Now, what Louisa shows in uh, in relationship to this case is that Dalit villagers uh, had come to realise through their own relatively bitter experiences that life in in the city, life in urban India, isn't necessarily all that it's uh, cracked up to be. Uh, and as a result of that, as a result of their disillusionment with, uh, with urban life, had come to reassess the countryside as a site where dignified uh, lives could be built uh, around agriculture. They articulated what Lisa uh, what refers to as a Dalit claim to agriculture. And it's this that, in a sense, creates the conflict with uh, the, tire, uh, the tire company that's trying to acquire land here. Uh, the fact that people were not willing to move away. So when they started to assert themselves, and and this takes us to the second claim, and it points to precisely the problematic nature of Chatterjee's proposition that subaltern groups today um, articulate their politics strictly in the domain of political society, that is, strictly in relation to bureaucratic categories, governmental categories, rather than democratic idioms and democratic processes. So what Luisa shows is that when Dalits started mobilizing in this village, they started mobilizing on the terrain of local democracy, uh, mobilizing in relationship to the panchayat in the village and making claims, fundamentally democratic claims, around the land acquisition process on that arena. So what we see here in this case study is uh, the way in which subaltern politics traverses back and forth in a sense the divide between political society and civil society. So the establishment of these as watertight compartments compartments just doesn't hold up. And it also testifies, in a sense, to how important uh, the local scale, uh, the panchayat, is in terms of uh, democratic politics in India today. There's an awful lot going on there. It's a very important arena of and assertion. assertion. Uh, So there was an attempt then to bring the local panchayat under democratic control. And and, and this throws up also some interesting questions about uh, what rural subaltern politics is all about today. And the third and final point uh, relates to um, the question of why this mobilization ultimately failed. I mean, very often when we study subaltern politics, it's important to bear in mind that we're studying groups who are mobilizing against very adverse odds. And that means that very often uh, the mobilizations don't succeed. And some of the more politically relevant questions that we can ask, of course, pertains to why exactly a certain strategy failed. Now, Chatterjee's argument is that um, the Indian state, in a sense, offers subaltern groups a stake in the neoliberal project through their various policies of compensation, resettlement, rehabilitation, and so on. Uh, What Luisa does is to show that it's more complex than that. It's not just about offering uh, subaltern groups a stake. It's also about the various ways in which the state actively disorganizes and disarticulates, if you will, subaltern politics, uh, partly through, in this case, corporate social responsibility, the ver- various interventions around corporate re- social, social responsibility, but also through coercive responses. And I think this is key here, That, uh, and it's also a point that I, I raise in my chapter, which is that you really see, in a sense, um, the way in which the state functions as a nodal point uh, for the reproduction of hegemonic power in those moments of coercion when subaltern groundswells are um, repressed uh, or in other ways crushed by the uh, by the violence or the other forms of repression by the state, so what? Uh, and we've seen it, of course, in India, in Kalinganaga. We've seen it in Nandigram. We've seen it elsewhere in land struggles. Quite often, that the state mobilizes its um, its repressive apparatus in response to subaltern claims. So Luisa's argument then is that we have to think beyond simply uh, the idea that the state in India today is capable of um, deflecting subaltern politics through through eliciting consent. Coercion remains an important part of that that repertoire. And today, you know, it stretches from... um, yeah, military offensives such as uh, Green Hunt or uh, the Indian state's presence in Kashmir and the Northeast uh, on one end, to the uh, despicable hounding of Tista Setuvaad and the uh, ridiculous um, policies implemented to, to, towards an NGO like Greenpeace, for that matter. I mean, the spectrum is wide, and and that's part of the picture here that we're investigating. And I think that. What Luisa has done in her chapter and what's also been done by Kenneth Nielsen and Subia Sina, mm-hmm. whose uh, contributed chapters to the same section, is to show that there is a lot to be gained, not just from thinking with Chatterjee and his recent interventions, but also thinking beyond him and uh, exploring those tensions. You know, it's, uh, so, And, and that's, that, in a sense, is defining of the entire approach that we've tried to adopt to the Simulton Studies project in this book. The Support Studies Project has, of course, elicited a, a very polarized response in a sense. It's almost as if you are obliged to be either for or against it, <laughs> um, which which is a ridiculous proposition. Um, and uh, what we've tried to do in this book is to explore it in a critical dialogue, uh, which recognizes its key contributions. And at the same time, um, you know, tries to move beyond its limitations uh, in and th- in in and through
1: uh, ethnographic explorations so of ongoing forms of supporting politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I think, uh, as I said before, I think he does this really well. So, um, as always with uh, with these podcasts, I have you know, we have this wonderfully rich book with lots of with lots of case studies, and I've. Sort of shot through quite quickly. So I was wondering, you know, there's many chapters I've, we've not had the chance to talk about. There's also this wonderful Afterword afterward. Sorry, by uh, by David Arnold. So I was wondering, is there something in particular that you'd like to highlight that I've not yet covered in my questions?
2: Well, I think uh, David Arnold's afterward, and actually his very generous participation through the life of this project shows, you know, as we've been saying, right through the continued relevance, both and analytically, but also politically of the Support and Studies Project and what can be gained from dialogue with it within and beyond the bounds of India. So in South Africa, where I now teach and where this book was first launched, a number of colleagues are very actively using the Support and Studies rubric to understand the dynamics of contemporary protest there. And I think this shows just how far the Support and Studies Project has traveled. But also, and we talked about this a little bit in at the launch in Johannesburg, how it can perhaps be thought as the first genuine attempt to theorize from the south. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful, thank you. So now that uh, this book is out, I was wondering uh, in your own um, careers and and research, what are your what are the new projects that you're working on, either together or separately?
2: Um, well, actually, together we're just in the process of uh, pulling together, which sort of quite nicely links on which what I said, uh, a special journal issue on. Uh, thinking of sociology from the south so kind of global sociology so we're trying to pull together some pieces of work and this has partly been facilitated by my quite recent move from you know the UK to South Africa and being exposed to very very interesting and provocative conversations uh, in South Africa which don't find their way to you know our conversations in the north as it were uh, but otherwise, the, the, the chapter, my chapter in the book draws on a project uh, that I'm doing on the women's movement, well, rather contemporary feminist politics in India. And uh, this is hopefully, well, in the process of being written up as a monograph. And uh, queer queer politics forms sort of one site of uh, this project to look, at, to look at how feminist subjects are being constituted today um, and what types of you know, politics uh, they might be engaged in.
0: And much like Srila, my my own work, in a sense, extends from my contribution to, to this book. I'm, um, I'm currently putting the conceptual apparatus that I've tried to develop there uh, to work in an analysis of uh, the making of, well, subalternity and simultaneously the contestation of subalternity uh, in Beel communities Beel Adivasi communities in western India and, and specifically western Madhya Pradesh from well uh, the early 19th century up to the present uh, to work in what will hopefully become a, a monograph which should be ready about uh, around next year And um, and you know in parallel with that I'm Pursuing a, a quite a large-scale research, research project, which seeks to investigate the, the relationship between uh, state formation and social movements in India from 1920 to the present, looking at how social movements have influenced processes of state formation from uh, from the sort of uh, the emergence of uh, mass-based nationalism uh, in India up until the present, and conversely how. Uh, the form of the Indian state has defined, in a sense, the arenas in which uh, social movements operate and the extent to which social movements have been able to pursue oppositional projects and and deepen democracy uh, um, in India. So, so this and this work is ongoing um, with uh, with postdoctoral uh, researchers as part of uh, a team at the University of Bergen.
1: wonderful they all sound like really fascinating projects so we'll keep uh, our eyes open for them in the future uh there's there's not much more for me to do apart from to thank you both again for for coming on the podcast and thanks again for the chance to talk about your wonderful book Thank you.
2: yeah thank you for your interest in the book
1: thanks so much for downloading the new books in south asian studies podcast i've been your host ian cook and today we've been talking about new subaltern politics By Alf Nielsen and Sorella Roy. I really enjoyed this book. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you're listening again. Alright.